This podcast is brought to you by the American Urological Association and is hosted by Dr. Victor Nitti, Chair of the Office of Education. This podcast was recorded on January 12, 2016. Welcome. Today's podcast is on female sexual dysfunction. This is Vic Nitti. I am very happy to welcome my co-host, Dr. Erwin Goldstein. Dr. Goldstein is clinical professor of surgery at the University of California, San Diego, is the director of sexual medicine at Alvarado Hospital, and is also the director of San Diego Sexual Medicine and the editor-in-chief of Sexual Medicine Reviews. Dr. Goldstein is well-known in the field of urology as a champion for sexual dysfunction in both men and women, and he has made this his life's work since the 1970s. Uh, We at the AUA believe this is a very important topic, and that's why we chose to address it in this podcast format. So without any further ado, uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Erwin Goldstein to this podcast. Well, it's uh, such a pleasure and honor, uh, Dr. Nitti, to be asked to do this. And what we have uh, assembled is what I believe to be uh, important areas for urologists to understand in women's sexual health. So we'll start. The first topic is the anatomy of the female genital tract as it relates to urology. And the first key point is that the external genitalia really consists of three distinct organs. And most uh, healthcare providers are unfamiliar with the reality that there are three distinct organs. Uh, so there is the vulva, which is ectoderm, and it basically starts from the thigh, goes through the labia majora, goes to the sulcus between the majora and the menorah. And the external part of the menorah is still considered part of the vulva. But as you spread apart the uh, introitus and you come to the inner aspect of the labia minora, uh, there's a distinct change in color from the typical brown color of ectoderm skin to the beginning of what's called heart's line, H-A-R-T, heart's line, that separates the, the vulva from the vestibule. And the vestibule is endoderm, and from a urologist's point of view, That's essentially the same embryologic tissue as the bladder. Um, And uh, in men, the vestibule becomes the penile urethra. So it, in fact, is uh, the same embryology as the uh, urinary system that we as urologists uh, work on every day. So the vestibule is a very important aspect to the female genitalia. And the vestibule ends at the hymenal tissue, the hymenal remnant tissue. And then the hymenal remnant uh, begins the vagina which then goes to the uh, cervix. The next key point is that the vestibule, which is endodermal, um, is uh, rich in androgen receptors. So of the many things that uh, women are treated with, uh, estrogen and progesterone are very common in the gynecologic community, but for whatever reason, testosterone is not really uh, utilized. And testosterone is a very important sex steroid hormone in women. And uh, the health and integrity of the vestibule uh, is highly dependent upon uh, the the testosterone level in women. Um, The uh, vestibule either becomes the uh, uh, male urethra if the uh, uh, embryology is for uh, male and stays as the vestibule if for women. 
the uh, there are many glands in the vestibule, which would be called uh, minor vestibular glands in the male urethra are the glands of Littre. They're the equivalent glands. And when we uh, biopsy the uh, vestibular glands in women, there are many androgen receptors consistent with the fact that they are required in uh, the health of the vestibule. So if you, for example, take advantage of the fact that there are many medications such as birth control pills, where 70 million women are exposed to birth control pills, 100% of all users of birth control pills have a very high sex hormone binding globin level, which then would lower the free testosterone. So we've exposed many generations of women to low testosterone states, and we have many generations of women that have pain during sexual activity, really because of vestibular pathology relating to low testosterone. Now, surrounding the female urethra, which is a location that the urologist will use to place mesh material for urinary incontinence, <laughs> is, is the uh, female prostate. It's the exact analogy to the male prostate, uh, there are periurethral glands that stain positive with PSA and are probably highly related to orgasmic potential in internal orgasm. To identify all of these uh, organs in women, we use a sort of similar to cystoscopy examination that we use uh, in urology. Uh, we use a, a, uh, an examination called vulvoscopy, which is basically taking a culposcope, moving it about one foot uh, uh, more distally so we can stare at the external genitalia tissue. We can stare at the heart's line, we can stare at the vulva, we can stare at the hymen, the frenulum, we can stare at the clitoris, we can stare at the minor vestibular glands, we can stare inside the vagina and look at the female prostate and its integrity. So we can assess the hormonal integrity looking at vulvoscopy, and it's really a, a, a very important test. In our office, every woman that gets an evaluation gets vulvoscopy either on an initial visit and on follow-up, and it allows us to assess uh, basically what we're doing when we're treating patients and how well we are. And I have one slide up that shows uh, a, a woman's vestibule and uh, external genitalia in menopause, and after the various hormonal treatments, we can show that the tissue becomes more pink, more robust, more lubricated, and we can get objective information about our follow-up that way. So in summary, anatomy of the female genital tract is important, um, and uh, uh, we have an investigation vulvoscopy that allows us to assess uh, the women's uh, genital status. So On Erwin, Erwin, yes. it, would, it would seem to me that in order to for us to do a, an even cursory evaluation of a woman with uh, female sexual dysfunction, it's really important that we understand the anatomy, understand the various receptors that are there, um, understanding the abnormalities in, in the anatomy. Um, would you say that's true? 100% correct. And, and our colleagues in gynecology absolutely do not do vulvoscopy as a routine examination, do not examine the external genitalia as what is required. And it's frustrating to... Uh, to, to, it's frustrating to, um, to, to, to see patients come in having seen many uh, healthcare providers who really haven't examined uh, uh, the, the, the site of pathology. Uh, but in urology, um, we're very familiar with endoderm, and endoderm stares right at, us, right at us when we do examinations in the women's genitalia. Great. Okay, so the next topic we're going to talk about is the sort of treatment strategies, uh, and we're going to talk first of hormonal. So the 
you know, cholesterol is the basic uh, a steroid. It has uh, um, uh, 27 carbons. It has a main structure that has six carbons attached to a, a ring of six carbons attached to another ring of six carbons attached to a ring of five carbons. That sort of basic fingerprint is seen in essentially every steroid from progesterone to testosterone, to dihydrotestosterone, to estradiol. It's actually seen in cortisol and cortisone and uh, uh, corticosterone and uh, um, aldosterone and all the other uh, items. The, the, the point is uh, the, the enzymatic uh, metabolism of cholesterol, which goes through various set patterns, uh, um, we'll see um, needs to examine, for example, progesterone, testosterone, estradiol, and dihydrotestosterone in our women patients with sexual function. These are just normal uh, um, 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 hormonal uh, levels. They're not synthetic. They're not designed by drug companies. Uh, they're just basic parts of the metabolism of cholesterol. It's very important for the patient and the healthcare provider to understand that these are just very important things, that as it, women age, the enzymes that make these products don't necessarily have the activity they did in the younger level, and they won't be able to uh, generate the synthesis of these things. So we measure uh, these very important critical uh, sex steroid values. So we do it uh, at a level for uh, uh, in menopause, for example, where uh, women will come in with uh, atrophy and changes in their sexual responsiveness, uh, lubrication, dryness, uh, pain. And we'll do it in women on birth control pills where uh, their testosterone status will be altered by the uh, medication. Uh, we actually get nine blood tests, and I think it's important to just go over them. We get a total testosterone, a sex hormone binding globulin value. It's much more important in women to get the SHBG value. It's a liver uh, synthesized uh, protein that binds the testosterone, therefore rendering it really not available to tissues. In all our women, we get dihydrotestosterone. We do this importantly because we've noted a whole a slew of women who have very poor 5-alpha reductase activity. They can sort of give them testosterone. They don't get any side effects from the testosterone, but they don't get any benefits either. Now, in women in perimenopause and menopause, we measure their estradiol and progesterone. We get LH and FSH to sort of see where they are in their cycling. Uh, and we also get two other very important hormones, uh, thyroid-stimulating hormone to measure thyroid function as a screen level, and prolactin. You don't want to miss the prolactinoma, the so-called brain tumor. We have uh, values that we established uh, uh, for normalcy, uh, but assessing the uh, hormonal strategy is important. Now, if testosterone come back, uh, comes back as a low level, especially the free testosterone value, we have testosterone therapies. So there are FDA-approved strategies for men, no FDA-approved strategies for women, um, but they require this hormone for their sexual health and for their overall general health, for bone health, muscle health, uh, for brain function to prevent dementia and Alzheimer's. Uh, testosterone is a very important product. So we have the uh, traditional male strategies. We do one-tenth of the dose for women. And with this, we keep them at a calculated free testosterone of 0.8 nanograms per deciliter. So we use the traditional transdermal gels or solutions. We use uh, intramuscular injections on a weekly basis, 0.1 ml of a 50 milligram per ml, the traditional male testosterone is 200 milligrams per ml. We use a 50 milligram per ml testosterone, either an anthate or cypionate. And we teach them how to do intramuscular injections in their vastus lateralis muscles, just their mid-thigh, basically. 
Or we put a testosterone pellet, uh, the, the medicine is a 75 milligram testopel pellet, and we will do one every about four to six months, depending on their needs. So we can cover their testosterone either in the menstrual, uh, uh, men menstruating women uh, on birth control pill sort of therapy or in women in their menopause. For estradiol therapy, maybe it's a little more familiar in gynecologic circles to use estradiol. It's a very important product and uh, urologists need to understand that. There's oral agents. We don't promote oral agents because they have risk of phenothromboembolic disease. They change lipids and they actually increase SHBG, but they're available. We do uh, transdermal gels, there are transdermal patches, there's three months uh, vaginal rings uh, that can be placed and there's weekly intramuscular injections for women financially strapped. The intramuscular injections, both for testosterone and estrogen are the way to go. The drug is called estradiol valerate, it's 10 milligrams per ml. It's actually FDA approved and you can get it at any pharmacy. Uh, the third critical sex steroid is progesterone and there's a drug uh, um, Prometrium, it's a 100 milligram pill, and they take it Monday, Wednesday, Friday when they have a uterus, and Monday, Thursday when they've had a hysterectomy. There are other strategies for uh, uh, progesterone if they have problems with the oral medication. The, the big issue is pain with sexual activity or low interest uh, in women on birth control pills. And for that, we use a systemic testosterone with an idea to get their calculated free T to the ideal goal, 0.8 nanograms per deciliter using any of the strategies, the topical daily, the weekly IM injection, or the pellet. And we compound a local estradiol testosterone in a uh, base that's hypoallergenic. If they apply that to the vestibule, they can get dramatic relief of pain in about uh, uh, two to three months. In menopausal management, we again, we use five strategies which is three systemic uh, hormones, testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone, with two local treatments to their vestibule, which we've talked about, and they go through the hymen into the vagina for their fifth uh, therapy. Now, there are non-hormonal treatments that are FDA-approved, and that's the brand-new drug, the pink Viagra, called Flabantrin. Fabulous product, life-changing in uh, its ability to improve sexual function. Uh, it's novel, it's non-hormonal, it's been uh, examined in over 11,000 women. We have uh, over 50, as we speak now, of women on ADDYI, Addy, the uh, trade name is uh, Flibanserin, and uh, we've done extremely well with that agent, and I strongly encourage people to become certified, because you have to become certified to use this product. And then um, we have men who have penile implants, and they now are having sexual activity typically with women who are in menopause, who uh, they're coming at their partner with a more firm and solid erection. Uh, we have a group of women who are not getting appropriately managed for their menopause, who are now trying to have sex with men who are having excellent erections. So we encourage the women of the partners of men having implants to be assessed for their sexual function. Typically, they'll have low hormones. Typically, we'll provide them hormones. And typically, they will now engage in very healthy sexual life, making the penile implant a more favorable uh, solution. So in summary, the urologist should be very excited that there are many, many things we can do as healthcare providers to help women with sexual dysfunction. Erwin, I, I have a question for you. When you when we talk about hormone replacement, whether it be estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, are are those hormone replacements aimed specifically at symptoms, or would there be times where, just in general, because of low 
uh, serum values, you would choose, for example, testosterone replacement if there was not a specific symptom that you thought was related to lack of testosterone. For example, if it's not libido driven and it's not pain driven, but a woman has low testosterone, would that be a reason to think about replacing it if she has some form of sexual dysfunction? Well, typically, as you all know, in, in any uh, syndrome, the syndrome is the objective blood test value plus the symptom. Uh, we've talked primarily of desire and uh, of pain, but uh, testosterone could greatly influence their arousal response, their lubrication, which is basically glands from the vestibule, which is androgen dependent. And orgasm is very highly testosterone dependent, uh, as it is in men, uh, uh, men who have difficulty with orgasm, um, especially men with implants, uh, one should check their testosterone value. So uh, it would be uh, more likely that there'd be a symptom associated with a testosterone value that is less than our ideal goal of the calculated free T less than 0.8 nanograms per deciliter. That's a great question. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Okay, so we're now going to go, we have uh, three more sections left, and we're going to talk about uh, urinary incontinence now and how it relates to female sexual dysfunction. Um, Female sexual dysfunction is highly, highly associated with women with urinary tract issues, where the lower urinary tract symptoms, uh, uh, um, um, you know, consistent with diminished force and nocturia and uh, um, fr frequent urination or urinary incontinence, uh, stress or urge incontinence. Um, there is very high prevalence of low interest in sex, of less arousal in sex, of orgasmic dysfunction, and pelvic floor dysfunction is extremely common. If you take patients who are control without sexual dysfunction and look at women with urinary tract problems, especially incontinence, you'll see dramatic differences in their sexual function throughout all the domains, from desire, arousal, lubrication, orgasm, satisfaction, and pain will all be statistically significantly lowered. Um, and, and their issue. So when taking as a urologist a uh, history in a man with lower urinary tract symptoms and prostate problems, it's extremely common to have uh, a male erectile uh, problem or male sexual dysfunction, orgasmic dysfunction also. In a very parallel situation, women with urinary tract issues, and that's what urologists work on, uh, they should be asking their women about issues and problems of desire, arousal, orgasm, satisfaction, uh, um, and pain during sexual activity because it's extremely high prevalence of those conditions. If you look at qualitative research where you actually interview women who have urinary problems, they're saying, you know, it's sort of difficult to have a focus on sexuality when they're being distracted by urinary leakage or the pain when they urinate or their fear of when they have an orgasm that they're going to leak over the bed, those kinds of things. I mean, it should be so intuitively obvious, uh, but when you actually hear the actual words of our patients, it becomes very apparent that there will be sexual dysfunctions in this population. I think a very key point to take uh, is that as it is in men, um, that there this is a biopsychosocial issue, sexual dysfunction in men and women. Um, uh, in our facility, we're blessed to have a very large facility where we have an in-house physical therapist, and all patients spend one hour with our physical therapist. We also have a sex therapist, and all patients spend one hour with the sex therapist. And then all other patients, well, all patients continue in their process, and we have a biologic 
examination, uh, and they typically span upwards to four hours as their visit. So it's really important to, if it's not in your facility, to sort of go outside your facility, but to take advantage of the fact that it's biopsychosocial. We use a very standard uh, policy of identification first by history and physical education after the identification of the patient and the partner. And then we start with a step care policy that starts with modification of things that are reversible, especially hormones, and then uh, medications that are non-hormonal, uh, uh, and then get into surgery. So it's a sort of a step care process where we go from simple to complicated and from least invasive to most invasive, as we do in any and all medical issues. I think what I'd like to spend a few minutes or a few seconds on is the placement of a mesh uh, for urinary incontinence. The TVT or TOT, the incision is made in the periurethral tissue right in the female prostate. The mesh lies in the female prostate. And it's sort of um, silly, I would say, to think that the placement of the mesh does not have any adverse influence on women's sexuality, because basically you're sitting in a sexual organ with both the dissection and the placement of the mesh. When you do ultrasounds of the mesh, the mesh just sits right in the female prostate area. Uh, we've done now meta-analyses. We presented these uh, information at the AUA where the uh, there's a great discrepancy between the outcome of their overall sexual satisfaction versus their orgasmic satisfaction. Their orgasmic satisfaction is far less. When you look at individual uh, uh, prospective studies where you have outcome measures of orgasm within the uh, outcome measure, uh, you'll see many, many women declaring less orgasmic potential. And I think as we learn more about this and we've learned how, for example, radical prostatectomy influences erectile function, we will soon learn how mesh procedures influence negatively the orgasmic experience of women, especially those women whose orgasmic experiences come from internal stimulation as opposed to uh, external clitoral stimulation. I think it's important to share that information with patients and hopefully invent a, a, a new strategy on a better way to do a mesh procedure uh, that would uh, allow us to uh, prevent the complication of orgasmic dysfunction. So we're going to stop at that. If you have any questions, uh, Dr. Nitty, on the incontinence issue, uh, we could address that or we can move forward. You know, one thing I'm curious about, is there any, um, you know, we see these fractionated CO2 lasers now that are used to treat vulvar vaginal atrophy. Um, any place for that in a woman with female sexual dysfunction? It's a great question, and <laughs> I'm asked that uh, a lot. Basically, the uh, fractionated CO2 laser is intravaginal and uh, may or may not do what it's supposed to do, which is increase blood flow through its, uh, its technological um, uh, ability to, to uh, bore holes in the, in the tissue and, and get blood flow. But as we've discussed, uh, there are three parts to the woman's anatomy, both the vulva, the vestibule, and the vagina. 
for many, many women, upwards of 90% of women, their pathology is in their endoderm and their vestibule. And this fractionated uh, uh, laser is not addressing in any way, shape or form the vestibule. So I, I'm gonna take the policy, having seen many women have that treatment uh, who have continued sexual dysfunction that uh, it may not address uh, the vulvovaginal atrophy of their vestibule, which by the way, is a very important part of their atrophy. Right. And I'm not sure that that's supposed to be the primary uh, use of those lasers, but I would suspect that they do get uh, get a lot of use in that uh, for that There's indication or alleged indication. Their suspected indication is uh, rejuvenation of the vagina is uh, sort of what originally came to. But they've they've sort of made it a little bit more towards atrophy. Right. I mean, and I would suspect for a woman who for some reason can't or more commonly won't take estrogen for vulvar vaginal atrophy that perhaps for those local symptoms independent of any sexual dysfunction perhaps that's uh um, that might be a better indication yeah no and and i hear you that true okay we're now going to take uh, topic four which is the uh concept of uh, interstitial cystitis. Now, as a healthcare provider for women and a urologist, interstitial cystitis is extremely common. And uh, I uh, have been in the field of women's sexual health for more than two decades, and I'm extremely anxious to talk uh, about this to, to sort of get the healthcare providers who treat interstitial cystitis who may not be advancing uh, the woman's uh, symptoms, and to get another view. I think the bladder in many of these cases is a completely innocent bystander, and I think the vestibule actually is the source of the pathology. If you look at a woman's vestibule and you look at the urethra, you'll see that there are minor vestibular glands that basically lie on each side. And if you use the urethra as the 12 o'clock zone and you look at the anus as the 6 o'clock zone, we could call the minor vestibular glands at 1 and 11 o'clock to be minor vestibular glands that lie next to the urethra. There's beautiful pictures in Frank Netter's diagrams of these periurethral vestibular glands. And if they have a vestibulitis or pathology within the vestibular gland and that's sitting on top of the urethra, uh, and a woman has consistent symptoms of nocturia and urgency and frequency with sterile urine cultures, and the urologist doesn't really find an explanation for it and then diagnoses this as IC, um, I just have to say that having seen so many people, I just want to bring up that if a woman is failing interstitial cystitis management and, and there's just a puzzlement as to what's going on, please perform a vulvoscopy. You'll see the urethra, you'll see on either side of the urethra, very tender minor vestibular glands that really impact on the urethra. But the treatment for that wouldn't be any of the traditional treatments for interstitial cystitis. For uh, that possibility, we get back to vulvoscopy, a really life-saving diagnostic procedure for these women. A Q-tip would be placed on the 1 and 11 o'clock glands. The women jump uh, uh, several feet in the air, and then we can finally make the diagnosis instead of the interstitial cystitis. It would be a provoked form 
of vestibulodynia. And we have strategies to manage that, which are quite successful. So looking beyond the bladder is the issue. Provoked vestibulodynia can be many things. It can be lichen planus induced, lichen sclerosis induced, vaginitis induced. It could be allergic vaginitis induced, candidiasis, high tone pelvic floor dysfunction, disquamative inflammatory vaginitis. But the two key findings when you see diffuse tenderness around the vestibule in women, otherwise diagnosed as interstitial cystitis, the, the forms of vestibulodynia are called hormonally mediated vestibulodynia, very commonly associated with women on birth control pills and other uh, agents like Lupron during infertility or Lupron because of endometriosis efforts to, to stop the progression of the endometrial growth or what's called neuroproliferative vestibulodynia. This is a mast cell pathology where the mast cell can enter the endoderm, our urologic uh, epithelium, but can't leave. So they make uh, growth factors and in particular nerve growth factor, which uh, creates the scenario for excess nerves. And in that population, we do surgical excision of the vestibule. So in women with IC diagnoses who are failing uh, to, to progress on management, please consider that their, vest, their IC is really a provoked vestibulodynia. And if they're on birth control pills, get the blood test that we talked about before, especially you'll find the free testosterone way, way below the calculated value of 0.8 nanograms per deciliter. And we could manage that very easily with really excellent results. And the neuroproliferative, if we find it, uh, we can do uh, a vestibular uh, procedure called vestibulectomy. And uh, since it's endodermal, it's really a urologic uh, procedure. It's done minimally by the gynecologic community. The incision is carried millimeters from the urethra, and it should be a procedure that urologists perform relatively easily and well with great success. You know, Erwin, I think you make a great point about the Q-tip, and I think that you can <clears throat> use a Q-tip to, to really um, focally examine the vulva very well and find areas of tenderness that you just can't do by typical physical examination because bottom line is your finger's just too big. So I, I utilize Q-tip exams all the time, as you, as you mentioned, and I think that's really important. Uh, and I, I agree with you that I think that those vestibular glands are oftentimes a source of either urethral pain or, you know, pain that's quote unquote pelvic pain or whether people think it's interstitial cystitis. So I would, uh, I would echo your, uh, um, your enthusiasm for looking for that uh, because obviously the treatments are so very different. Well, I appreciate that. And the final topic is the analogous organ for the urologist and the penis would be the clitoris. And uh, in the field, uh, uh, clitoridinia, which is the sort of broad name to women with uh, um, pain in the clitoris, uh, this is a, a devastating, uh, life-changing uh, condition that will not allow a woman to basically wear tight clothes, to, to have sexual activity, uh, and you know, there are very few people who focused on the treatment of clitoridinia. So again, with the vulvoscope, uh, one can look very carefully at the clitoris, and I'm going to take you through some of the, some of the observations that we've made. It's very interesting when you look at a population of men and women 
roughly 2% of men up to maybe 5% of men will say that during sexual activity, there is pain during sexual events. Uh, these are men typically with Peyronie's disease or prostatitis or pelvic floor dysfunction. Uh, but if you asked an exact parallel age group of women, uh, you're looking at up to 36.8% of women will complain of pain. It's a dramatic difference in the issue of a sexual health problem, men and women. And clitoridinia is a disabling sexual pain syndrome with burning and stinging and sharp pain confined to the clitoris, and it really is a problem. So a good diagnostic strategy for the clitoris is very important. Um, and uh, one of the very important uh, examinations is, again, insisting when you do vulvoscopy that you identify the corona. When you examine a man's penis, you look at the uh, glans penis, and underneath the glans penis at the most uh, distal aspect would be the corona, and visualization of the corona is important. And during every examination of the clitoris, retraction of the hood to see the corona should be a unique and careful part. You, you tell the patient you're touching the region, uh, you take a Q-tip, push back on the prepuce, and you should see the corona. Failure to visualize the corona is an unacceptable uh, uh, finding. In other words, uh, there are men's penises whose uh, foreskins and adjacent skin attach to the corona, resulting in a balanitis. Well, the exact same pathology happens in women. Uh, when you can see maybe 20% of the glands and you can't see the corona, insist that the woman's uh, uh, examination is abnormal. Uh, you must uh, uh, try and retract as possible. If you can't, you must assume, therefore, that the adjacent skin is a, adjacent skin is attached to the glands, and underneath that is a closed compartment syndrome, balanitis, which is so easily managed. Put the patient to sleep take very uh, fine uh, dissecting forceps, separate the tissue. You'll see keratin pearls galore in the uh, space between the clitoris will now breathe, the balanitis will be allowed to heal, and you will save the misery of women's lives uh, in general. So that's a very important, very simple thing. Urologists are very uh, uh, used to that. Another clitoral problem is priapism. We as uh, urologists are very familiar with priapism. Um, and uh, we know how to manage it. Uh, we basically uh, identify that intracavernosal administration of phenylephrine will contract the erectile tissue and will result in alleviation of the priapism. Women get priapism. They get it the way men get it in sickle cell issues and uh, psychotic uh, medications, trazodone in particular. Uh, we see it in idiopathic uh, context. And uh, if you can see the uh, shaft of the clitoris uh, in gorge, you can take a just exact same phenylephrine administered intracavernosally and the priapism will disappear. There are rare cases where we have to do uh, a shunt operation and we actually take a trocar that's the equivalent of the trocar we use for the testapel. It's a 16 gauge. It's the perfect diameter for a corpus cavernosum of a female clitoris. We enter through the glans clitoris. We make a tiny incision in the uh, glands and pass the trocar right into the corpora cavernosa of the uh, um, clitoris. Uh, we actually use a brush uh, uh, biopsy instrument like we use and uh, for the ureter, pass it through the trocar, uh, fish out the clots, and we've had excellent success with the exact same 
technical procedure as we do in, in women, uh, excuse me, as we do in men. Uh, we have other reasons for clitoral uh, pain, in particular uh, a traumatic uh, neuropathy. Uh, some women uh, um, in, in very aggressive sexual activity will have their clitoris sort of traumatized during the thrusting, and they can develop a traumatic dorsal neuropathy, and we've had great success with uh, intra-glans uh, um, steroids. So I, I just want to bring up that urologists uh, are great practitioners for the clitoris slash penis. They can use their same principles for male sexual dysfunction into this female world. And uh, overall, in general, in urinary incontinence, in interstitial cystitis, in clitoral issues, in hormonal issues, uh, we understand endoderm. And endoderm is a huge issue in women's sexual health. And we're now in an era, uh, Victor, where uh, a doctor can actually write a prescription like we have now done for 18 years for men uh, for a woman with a sexual health problem. It's an amazing era. I never thought this era would ever happen. Uh, but uh, we are now going to have patients walk into our office wanting treatment. And that's, that's why we as a society need to be prepared for their management. You know, you, you mentioned a, a certification process before. Um, yes. What's involved in that? Oh, it's four questions. They're fairly straightforward. Um, uh, a basic uh, um, um, understanding of the phlebanstrian uh, medicine would get you certified. So not a big deal. And I think uh, urologists, 100% of them should be certified for the management of uh, women's sexual health problems by an FDA-approved medication. Great. Well, uh, Erwin, I, I can't thank you enough for that uh, really excellent summary uh, in, in not that long of a time of a very uh, broad and, uh, and complex issue. I think you did a wonderful job of uh, taking us through anatomy, treatments, and um, concomitant problems or misdiagnoses to, uh, to look out for. Uh, that was very comprehensive and, and really uh, very good. I would like to also thank our audience uh, for listening to our, our podcast. I hope that you have enjoyed it. Uh, and um, um, if, uh, um, if, you, uh, if you have any comments, um, that is certainly uh, something that uh, we at the a AUA would like to hear. Um, the topic for our next podcast is going to be the choosing wisely statements that the AUA is participating in. And we're going to go through with Dr. Stuart Wolf, the uh, five uh, newest choosing wisely statements that the AUA uh, has put forth. Uh, and we can briefly uh, review the previous five statements. So that's going to be our next podcast coming up uh, in about a month. So uh, again, I would like to thank Dr. Goldstein for that uh, really uh, um, uh, excellent uh, talk on female sexual dysfunction. And I look forward to hearing more from Erwin uh, uh, at our AUA annual meeting and uh, in, in future meetings as well. Um, thank you very thank much. Thank you very, very much, uh, Dr. Nitti. Uh, it's such a privilege to, to talk on this topic to the American Urology Association. And as, as in your job, getting this out there, it's so important. Thank you so much for this. Thank you very much.